Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. I invite you now to open your Bibles with me to the book of Romans. We've been studying the book of Romans for many weeks. We come now to chapter 15, verses 1 through 13. The title of the message today, Unity, If You Please. Romans 15, 1 through 13. Now, Paul has been writing for a chapter and a half, really, concerning Christian unity. He's writing to a church at Rome that is comprised of people from a lot of different cultural backgrounds, the two main groups seem to be Jews who've been converted to Christianity and pagans, Greeks, who have set aside their pagan practices and uh, joined their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ in the context of the local church. Now, it should not surprise you, if you're familiar with Paul's writing at all, that he talks about unity. I'm reminded of our study of Ephesians. Ephesians 4, 1, we read, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now there Paul speaks of unity, not only in position, we know that we are one as Jesus prayed that we would be one in John 17. Of course, all of his prayers are answered. But Paul wants us to be unified practically. That is in practice. He wants us to live it out in our personal relationships, namely in our relationships in the local church. And so he begins in chapter 14. It says it begins by accepting one another. People who come from different cultural backgrounds, who have different concerns of conscience, maybe a little different understanding of, of what they can do and can't do. They, some have come to fully appreciate their Christian liberty. He calls them strong, and those have yet to come to that understanding. He calls those the weak Christians. They have to get along in the same place. He says, accept one another. That means don't judge one another harshly. Don't be a stumbling block to another person's progress and sanctification. Don't tear down another brother or sister. Rather, edify them and, and build them up. And now he gives us here in chapter 15 another one another, and that is to please one another. Let's read our text now, Romans 15. He says, now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. And for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, 
Therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. Again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. Again, Isaiah says, there shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles. In him shall the Gentiles hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. May the Lord add his blessing to this reading of his word. Now, there's several points I want to make from the text today. We're just going to walk through them, and I think the meat will fall right off the bone if you pay a little bit of attention today. Uh, the first is instruction. He gives an instruction to all believers. In verse 1, he says, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Now, here's that metaphor he's been using throughout these two chapters of the strong and the weak Christian. The strong defined as those who appreciate their liberty. They're not bound by conscience or past religious experiences. They know that all good things have been given to believers to enjoy. On the other hand, there are folks coming out of Judaism with all of its rites and rituals and dietary restrictions. There are folks coming out of the Gentile religions and all of the baggage that comes with that, that they're not quite there yet. So Paul says, here's what we should do. He says, the strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. Now that word ought, we've seen already in chapter 14. It's a financial term. It's a term of indebtedness. He's saying that we owe something to one another. In chapter 14, he says, owe nothing to any man except to what? To love. And here it is in practice. We owe, we have an obligation to weaker Christians to bear them up. Now, sometimes when we have a presentation to make or we're going to sing a solo in church and we aren't quite prepared or we are not sure we're going to hit that high note, we say, bear with me. We know what that means, right? Be merciful. Don't have your rotten tomato ready to throw at your, at your side. Um, that's not what this word means. To, to bear with the weak means to come alongside and shoulder their burden. And I think it's implied in that that we nurture the weaker brother or sister patiently while they are growing stronger. It's not just we leave them in their weakness and say we're going to tolerate you. We're going to walk along beside you. We're going to bear this burden with you until you're ready to bear it alone. Now, some have said, well, this is man-pleasing, Paul. You're going along to get along. Well, remember, Paul's not talking about issues of obvious sin. He's talking about those things which are morally neutral. They're just matters of opinion. They're just matters of preference or personal conviction, not things that the Bible expressly prohibits or denies. And so he's not man-pleasing at all. In fact, at, at points of sin, Paul calls the church to action every time. But he says, we do this, that is, we bear our weaker brother not to please ourselves. Now, that's one of the most important phrases, I think, in the New Testament. Because if everyone is motivated by his or her own pleasure, we will have chaos. And God's not a God of chaos. He's a God of order. You think about all the relationships that God has ordained. In marriage, for example, what if a husband and a wife stood here before witnesses and the pastor and they vowed something like this. I promise that I'm going to put my needs first. <laughs> we know that is a marriage that's destined for shipwreck. What if parents and children only put their needs first? What if at work everyone built their own kingdom and their own silos and didn't have the bigger picture in mind? We, we see it, I think, most acutely on sports teams. 
And my son Andrew's 11, and he's uh, playing Little League again this year. And they were supposed to have the first game Friday night, and it got rained out. Uh, so we went over to the, the batting cage to, to hit inside. And he said, well, Dad, you know this year it's legal in our league to bunt. And I said, well, son, you're not going to bunt. You're a Sanders. We, we swing for the fences. And he said, but, Dad, you said last year sometimes you need to bunt for the good of the team. Uh, and I said, you're, you're right. I did say that, and, and sometimes you do need to bunt for the... And that's all Paul's saying here. Sometimes, strong believer, you need to put the other person's needs first and get out of the way and let someone else be in the spotlight and just help bear that burden. We do that in marriage. We do it for our children. We do it at work. We do it on our sports teams. And if... You know where I'm going. If we can do that for those folks, shouldn't we do that for our brothers and sisters in Christ at the church to put their needs ahead of our own? That's what he's saying. That's the instruction. Bear with the weaknesses of those without strength. Second thing he says, I'm going to give you an example of someone who did that very well. Verse 3, he said, For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. In other words, here's Paul holding up Jesus as a person who was not motivated by self-interest or self-preservation or self-enrichment. In fact, we see that theme throughout the scriptures. I'll just give you three as a sample. John 10, 17, Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one is taking it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I receive from my Father. So Jesus didn't condescend to take on human flesh, be born of poor parents, Mary and Joseph, so that he could live it up, have an easy life, retire early and sit on the beach. He said, I came to lay down my life. That's the example Paul holds up for us. Philippians chapter 2, speaking of Christ, he said, let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, right? Who left the glories of heaven, took on human flesh. 1 John 2, 6 I think the clearest verse in the Bible and maybe the poorest put into practice. The one who says he abides in him, that's Jesus, ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. <laughs> He's saying if you're going to call yourself a Christian, a person is Christ-like, you ought to live like Jesus. Well, that's all Paul's saying. Here's the example. Now, sometimes when a parent or a teacher or a coach holds up the example of someone who did it better than you ever could, it has the opposite of its intended effect. What we're trying to do is encourage you and say, hey, if this guy can do it, you can too. But we know something about Jesus. He's perfect and we're not. And so if we're not careful, we'll be discouraged by Paul holding up the example of Jesus about putting others first. And you're tempted to say, well, I can't be like Jesus. I'm not even going to try. And so he, he follows that up with some encouragement. Verse 4, he says, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. Now he's talking about the Old Testament. There was no other scripture at this time. It was collected later. But Paul says we can read the Bible as we have it and be encouraged by it, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we may have hope. 
Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. Now how is it that the scriptures give us encouragement and, and why would Paul say that? Well, I think the answer to the question of why is so that we might have hope. Well, what is hope defined for the Christian? It's simply confidence in the future. That's why the scriptures were written for our instruction that we may have confidence of his provision. All the promises of God are in one of two categories. They either have been fulfilled or they soon will be, right? And so when we look at the Old Testament characters and how God made promises to them and fulfilled those promises, it ought to give us confidence in the future. Now that's true of New Testament scriptures today. I failed to understand that for many years, particularly as it related to the uh, books like Revelation that I found to be a little mysterious and frightening, to be honest. And uh, as I read those, I thought, what in the world is this? Until I came to understand that all the scripture is given to encourage us. When you read about all those devastating things that are going to happen in the future, here's what we are reminded of. God comes out on top, doesn't he? We know how the book ends. And so that should bring us encouragement. It's just two things, perseverance and encouragement. Perseverance is the patient endurance until the end. Book of Matthew says, he that perseveres to the end will be saved. In Hebrews chapter 11, we have that great cloud of witnesses, the great heroes of the old covenant, Abraham and, and others. They are set to us as great examples of those who persevered in faith until the end. And then we see that great hall of fame, that, that uh, great cloud of witnesses, the writer says, who's cheering us on as we run our race today. That gives us encouragement, doesn't it? Keep going, Christian. There is joy on the other side. There is rest for our labor. And so as we are reminding one another of those things, we have to learn to be patient with one another. And so I would say if patience and endurance comes from the word, what's more important than reading your Bible? What's more important than being at Sunday school? What's more important than going to a discipleship class on Wednesday night? Or what's more important than teaching your children to memorize scripture. I'd say not much. This is the way that uh, we gain hope and we persevere and we're reminded to be patient with one another. And then he says in verse five, by way of reminder, you can't do it on your own. The means that a sovereign God uses to encourage us is the word. And then he says, now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement. This is a gift from God grant you to be of the same mind and of one another according to Christ Jesus. To, what does it mean in the church to be of the same mind? Well, some people think it's like the cults where everyone has to say the same mantra. Everyone has to genuflect the same way. No, that, that's not what it means in the context of the New Testament church. To be of the same mind does not mean uniformity. Rather, it means harmony of mind. We have the same goal. And we have unique gifts and skills and abilities and callings within that. We have different personal convictions, but we have the same goal. That is to glorify Christ even when there are differences of opinions. And he says, I'm praying that God would grant you that same mind according to Christ Jesus. And the book of Ephesians, I love to stress the difference between giving to someone according to and out of. Ephesians says Christ gives us spiritual blessings according to his riches. 
which means commiserate with his level of wealth spiritually. Now, how wealthy is Jesus? Well, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills as God, but he's speaking of spiritual blessings. And so Paul says every spiritual blessing. So he's without limit when it comes to his ability to give. Now, if he were to dole those blessings out in small increments, we'd say he's a miser. But he's not a miser. He's more like that woman with the alabaster bottle of perfume who breaks it open and just pours it out luxuriously on us. That's how he gives according to. And Paul is praying that we would get this perseverance and encouragement according to Christ Jesus. Why? What's Paul's goal? Why does he keep straight? Why has he gone on for a chapter and a half on this one issue of Christian unity? Well, verse 6 tells us, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know a lot about music, but even I know that those are musical terms. One accord and one voice. He's, he's speaking of harmony rather than discord. And though I don't know much about music, I know harmony when I hear it, and I know discord when I hear it, and when I see it in a church. My wife and I sometimes as we're traveling through the countryside, usually heading over into East Texas or even on I-20 over to Mississippi where I'm from, there'll be a painted sign on the roadside that says two miles to Harmony Baptist Church. And I'll say to her, I guarantee you that's a church split. <laughs> First Baptist Church of that town had two groups that got mad at each other and one group said we're leaving and they went and bought five acres outside of town and says we're not going to let it happen again so we're going to call it Harmony Baptist Church. <laughs> and you go on two more miles and there's another sign that says Friendship Baptist Church on the left. <laughs> Unfortunately, we Baptists are not known for harmony. And it's sad. Agent Rogers used to tell the story about uh, the Baptist who was shipwrecked alone on a desert island for 30 years. And finally one day, a passing ship saw his smoke signals and sent men to investigate and there found this man, barely clothed with a beard down to his waist, emaciated, but alive. And he just thanked the Lord again and again that he was finally rescued. But he said, before you take me to the ship, I want to show you how I've been living these 30 years. And so they went up into the jungle a little ways into a clearing and there sure enough, this man had built a, a house out of bamboo with a thatched roof and next to it was a smaller building. He said, well, the, the building on the left is my house and the building on the right is my storage building. It's where I keep my food and supplies. And the men said, well, what's, what's that third building? And he said, well, that's where I go to church. Every Sunday morning, I get up and uh, I read the scriptures and uh, prayer and I sing and I have a service. Well, they said, well, what's that fourth building? The one next to your church? He said, well, that's where I used to go to church. Now, unfortunately, we, we laugh to keep from crying. And we should pray that that would not be our reputation, not just as Baptists, but as, as believers. So what then is the goal of our existence? Well, Paul says that we would, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that what SDG means? All to the glory of God. Everything that we do, including putting the other person first, is designed to give glory to God. Now, fifthly, 
he gives us a reminder. Therefore, which is always a reminder word. Look to what I've said previous to this. This is in verses 7 through 12. He says, therefore, accept one another. That's where he started. If you go back to chapter 14, verse 1, I told you to highlight it, underline it. Accept one another. It means don't hold one another at arm's length. Bring one another close. Fully accept one another, even when you have different preferences, different cultural backgrounds. Accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision. Now, who's the circumcision? That's the Jews. So he's talking about these different groups that he's brought together into one church. He says, first of all, he became a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to conform the promises given to the fathers. Those Old Testament fathers were promised there was a Messiah coming one day to save his people. And Jesus is he. And in verse 9 he says, for the Gentiles who did not have the covenant promises, but God told Abraham that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed one day to glorify God for his mercy. That is, he brought the Gentiles into that covenant promise. Therefore, he's quoting Old Testament scripture now, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles and I will sing to your name. Again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples praise him. And then Isaiah says, there shall come the root of Jesse. And he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. Now remember the two primary groups within the church at Rome were Jews who'd been converted and Gentiles who came out of paganism. Now they're thrust into the same organization, the same body, and there's tension. And there's friction. And Paul's saying, look, the same Jesus who died for the Jews died for the Gentiles. Remember what he said in Ephesians 4? There's one God, one baptism, one faith. And then he comes right back to where he started. He says, accept one another. That's the theme of this entire section of the book of Romans. Christian, accept one another. Why? Because Christ has accepted us. If we have been forgiven of our rebellion and our sin and welcomed and embraced by Christ into the household of faith, who are we to reject another brother or sister or hold at distance another that Christ has died for? We dare not. And so he does what he's been doing all the way through the book of Romans. He reinforces his instructions with scripture references. Two from Psalms, one from Deuteronomy, and one from Isaiah. Now that's an interesting thing to note here. I think he's showing that all the Bible is consistent and thematically surrounds this unity. For example, Jewish people thought of the Old Testament as divided into three component parts. There was poetry which included the Psalms. There was the law, the first five books of the Bible. We know it's the Pentateuch, of which Deuteronomy was one. That's quoted here. And then there was the prophets. And he quotes Isaiah, the prophet here, Isaiah 11:10. That is, all of these scriptures, indeed all of God's revelation, speak of the unity between Jew and Gentile through Christ. Paul's not naive. He's been around the block a time or two. He knows that people have trouble getting along. Even Christians in the church. And he's constantly praying for this unity. And he closes this section with a prayer. Verse 13. He says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy. Now where else in the New Testament do we have that two-word phrase, all joy? 
Well, for one, James chapter 1, where he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various kinds of trials and tribulations. Why? Because that's the very crucible that God uses to grow our faith. He makes us patient through pain and struggle so that we will be fitter instruments in His hand. I think that's what He's saying He's doing in the church. When we're willing to give ground, when we're willing to put the other person first, when we're willing to remove stumbling blocks to our other brother or sister's edification, when we take on the mind and the attitude of Christ of humility, then God uses that to grow us and make us like Him. He says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope. Remember, hope is a positive view of the future. He's not just wanting to have a little taste or a glimmer of hope. He says he wants us to abound in hope. Hope in superfluity. How? By the power of the Holy Spirit. And just as Paul points out, all three divisions of the Old Testament speak of the unity of those who are the Lord's, we find all three members of the Trinity at work bringing about that unity. We see God the Son always and ever doing the will of the Father. We see Him held up as our example of doing everything we do for the glory of the Father. We see the Holy Spirit giving us the power and the ability to do those things. And look, I want to tell you something all of you know. The Lord's doing a good thing here. Mr. Flick is right. It's good to be here. Not every church has that unity and peace that we have. And yet, as I tell our staff all the time, we are one inappropriate text message away from messing it up. And Satan is that roaring lion crouching at the door. As soon as we leave here today, he's going to be looking for that vulnerable person. He's going to be trying to introduce some negativity into your heart and mind that you deserve more or different or better that you're being mistreated by those people, that you're just as good as they are. And that's never been the question. He says the strong, the strongest of Christians ought to be taking the lead in submission. That's how you show you're strong. Putting the other person first, bringing that weaker brother in close, accepting them into full fellowship, not judging their motives or their cultural background or their personal convictions welcoming them, receiving them, removing every stumbling block out of their way because you have their best interest at heart. You want them to make as much progress in sanctification as you do. That doesn't happen naturally. We need the Lord's help, don't we? And we have to pray for it. We have to work for it. We have to be diligent to guard our hearts and minds through Satan's whispers. And I'm going to ask you now to bow your head and close your eyes and Thank the Lord for the unity that we've enjoyed at this church for many decades now. Thank the Lord that uh, your children, grandchildren get to grow up in this environment. And, and yet, acknowledging the fact that if we're not careful, that unity can be lost because of personal preference. Let's pray the prayer of Paul in verse 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this instruction that you've given us here today. 
that the strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those who are not yet strong, not to make them spoiled or help them to believe that they're the center of the universe, that we lift up their burden until they're stronger so that they can do the same for someone else down the road. Father, forgive us when we're easily offended. Father, I don't know how this plays itself out, probably in a hundred different ways in this church, and from everything to musical preference, to the temperature in the worship center, to what people wear, to what people bring to the Sunday school potluck. So many things potentially could cause friction. And yet, Lord, we're not to live in fear of that. We're to live in confidence, hope, Paul says, a favorable expectation of the future. Lord, we know how this world ends with Jesus on the throne. So Father, why would we cause disunity in the here and now? Lord, help us to celebrate what we have in common, which is um, faith in Christ and a common goal to bring glory to God. And so Father, I pray that you'd guard our unity and our fellowship here. I pray you'd add to our body where we have needs. I pray you'd send out from our body those who could be pastors and missionaries to help other churches. Lord, we continue to pray that we'd be a launching pad for ministry all over the world. But Father, we, we know you, you want to keep our church strong. And to do that, we have to submit our will to yours. And we have to put the other person first. Help us to do that for the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.